The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thanks, and hi, everybody. It's a new month, it's a new quarter, but it's the same volatile markets today. Let's check on all three major averages, which are down for the third day and four now, and pretty much near session lows here. The Dow's drop of 921 is just about 40, 50 points off the low. Uh, The president saying the U.S. should prepare for a, quote, very, very painful two weeks from the coronavirus. Italy's death count improved today, but officials are saying the U.S. should prepare for 100 to 240,000 deaths, and that's just continuing to weigh on sentiment here. Uh, another decline in oil also weighing on the markets, even with crude coming off its worst quarter ever. And now the bankruptcies are starting. Check on the action today. Uh, crude down another 1%, just over $20. And just in the past hour, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, as you just heard, said only 20% of those placed on a ventilator live to come off it and warned this outbreak is far from over. Listen. What we're looking at now is the apex, top of the curve, uh, roughly at the end of April which means another month of this. Sure enough, stocks took a move lower on those comments. Let's get more on today's market action from Bob Bassani, who joins me now. Bob, with a look at all of these different factors here as we kick off the new quarter. Yeah. And uh, a very sober assessment, again, from Governor Cuomo. And he did impact the market. Let me just show you the, uh, uh, the S&P 500, Kelly. We were, he, Governor Cuomo came on about 12.15 Eastern time. We were at 24.90 on the S&P and drifted lower from there. So we're 24.68, so maybe 20, 25 points on the S&P drifting to the downside. And there you see an intraday chart of that. Uh, as a result, the market has resumed what I call the defensive crouch uh, that it always does when when things get the, the news is bad. Uh, Walmart, for example, Procter and Gamble, Kroger, Clorox, uh, Campbell's Soup, uh, all among the few uh, groups that are on the upside today. Uh, REITs and banks getting hit very hard. Banks like Fifth Third down seven, eight, nine percent. Uh, energy also weak. We had a, a bankruptcy filing from Whiting. Retailers also notably to the downside. If you take a look, uh, Macy's is getting thrown out of the S&P 500 into the small cap, not the mid cap. And there's a lot of companies down there in the retail space that are in that very small cap group right now, including Kohl's, Nordstrom, Gap, all around $2 billion in market capitalization. More on that in the next hour. Kelly, back to wow, you. Wow, those are big declines. Bob, thanks, and we'll see you then. Uh, meantime, the 10-year okay. yield is dropping back below 0.6% today, and maybe that's why we're seeing such poor action across the financials. Let's get to Rick Santelli with more on that and all the bond market moves today. Rick? Yes, Kelly. Actually, we're moving a little bit back above 60, but let's look at the entire curve. Two-year note yields are down a couple of basis points, but they're basically at seven-year lows on their closing yields. But as you move down the curve, history, we talk to history. Look at a two-day of three-year notes. The fact that it's down at all means it's historic because yesterday's close was the all-time low-yield close. Uh, If you look at a a week-to-date of five-year notes, you can see same scenario. Uh, Here we hover at all-time low yields as long as we continue to be down on the session. And we are. Uh, Remember, 32 was the low today. That's the all-time intraday low 
Uh, we have moved above that by three or four basis points, as you see. Now, seven years, the same scenario. Seven years is at all-time closing yields because it's down on the day. And yesterday was the all-time low. Now, as we move towards the tens, you can see a week-to-day chart. It's come up a bit from that under 60 basis points that Kelly was referring to. Got down to 57. Remember, 54 is the all-time low yield close from the ninth. 31 is the intraday all-time low. Finally, let's look at some dollar index charts quickly. A two-week of the dollar index, well, it shows us that even even though we have come down a bit, hovering around 100 is not necessarily low by history standards. Open it up to a 10-year chart, and you can see what I'm talking about. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Rick, thanks very much. Rick Santelli. Well, it's a new month and a new quarter, but this is another sell-off following the worst first quarter ever for the Dow. Joining me with more on these markets are Barry James, the president of James Investment Research, and Rob Waldner is chief fixed income strategist at Invesco. It's great to have you both here. And Barry, I'll, I'll just start with you. Um, I mean, if you have a long enough time horizon, you can kind of wait anything out. Uh, but in this case, how would you tactically position portfolios for what could be an extended period of weakness? Yeah, that's a great question, Kelly. Um, we're in a shock and awe. Uh, you know, we had the shock, if I can stay with the, the wartime analogy that's been used. And now we're in the awe phase. Uh, and what we, what we see in this type of scenario, the three things, like I was, used to be a fighter pilot, and if you get an emergency, number one thing is keep flying the plane. So you need to keep flying the plane of your portfolios. So number one, make sure your allocation's right, make sure you're well diversified, and then just keep managing the portfolio and the names that you would have in the portfolio. And I would take two steps. First step is things that are going to hold up reasonably well within the current environment, and that's, uh, you know, things like uh, health care, some technology, uh, some utilities and those sorts, and then things that will, you know, also work on the other side of it so that you can, you can stay invested throughout this period of time. There's great opportunities when the markets are down like this to do some buying and when they're way up to do some selling. Uh, but uh, stay with the plane. Keep flying it. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if for anyone else, it would just be, you know, a, a trite analogy. When you're a fighter pilot, you get to use those terms, Barry. Um, let me turn, Robert, to you and on the fixed income side ask kind of similarly. I mean, there's, it's no more safe and fixed income right now because you either have extremely high valuations or a higher default risk than normal. So what's your advice? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. I mean, the way we're looking at this is the fundamental problem here is an economic problem, um, which is the virus and the sudden stop that we have in the U.S. economy, which is really unprecedented. But on top of that, we need to be very careful about the financial system and the financial uh, uh credit facilitation across the economy, because if we don't want to have a financial crisis on top of this economic crisis, we need to make sure the policymakers are really uh, putting through that credit through the system. I mean, I'm sure most viewers are aware of the amount of issuance that we've been getting in in the credit markets. Uh, In March, we got $259 billion of investment-grade issuance. We've had tremendous outflows out of fixed-income funds. Uh, In March, again, about $260 billion out of fixed-income funds. All that those are on the, the, all that is offset against um, you know the 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 fact that the Fed has been doing QE. So what we need to do, what the policymakers need to do, is ensure that they facilitate the credit in the economy to make sure that we can go through this bottoming process. Yes. Yeah, so explain, Robert, a little bit more about what you mean by that. Are these using conventional tools or some of their new toolbox? Well, uh, we're we're looking forward to the their investment grade purchasing program really getting going. Um, but I think we think they need to look uh, in two different areas. 
One, uh, they have very highly constrained the financial system now. So the banking system has a large amount of regulatory structure around it, which really keeps the banking system from flexing its balance sheet in response to credit demands like we're getting now. So one approach here would be to ease up on some of these regulatory burdens on the banking system so the banks could actually move to provide some of that credit to the system. Another approach would be for the Fed or the Treasury to be much more aggressive in buying um, other other assets, which which could also be done. Hmm. Uh, you've seen or we've seen that they're they're said they'll buy investment grade bonds. That's going to start, uh, and as a result, the investment grade market has seen more support. But there are areas, including areas of the mortgage market and the, and the structure market, that's very important to the economy, where uh, we haven't gotten support from the Fed so far. Interesting. So you're saying they they either need to ease up bank regulation so that the banks themselves do more lending, or have the Fed itself kind of come in with that credit support. You know, Barry, I, if you could just reflect for a second, I mean, we've th- there are so many similarities, unfortunately, between now and what happened in 08, 09, even though that time it felt like w- there were imbalances in the economy that needed to be addressed. And this time around, I'm not so sure. Does 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 it matter, I guess, is what I'm saying in terms of what brought us here and in how in, as it relates to how we get out of this or how you should be investing? It is, uh, I think, quite a bit different than than 08, which was a financial crisis that just kind of consumed itself in the end. The Federal Reserve has learned uh, from that. They have almost unlimited QE out there, and uh, they're supporting the credit markets and the like. So I think, uh, I think you know, we're, we're not going to have that problem, and the banks aren't going to face the uh, you know, the fact that they don't have any reserves. So that's a different piece than what we have. This is, this is a real recession uh, that could be incredibly deep. Uh, it might not be long, but it will be incredibly deep. And the one truth that I've always found is that things always go further than you think they should. Hmm. And that will happen both to the economy, to the stock market, to the bond market, and, uh, of course, to, uh, you know, the entire United States. So some similarities. Uh, we've gotten a lot of the risk out of the market that you would normally see, but we have this whole outside uh, factor that is totally different than what we saw in 08. Do both of you think we need, although we've already seen programs which could equal 40 percent of GDP, do we need to see more? And, and do we worry about the sort of side effects and consequences of that, especially on the debt and deficit, or no? I mean, very quick answer, Robert, I'll give you the last word. Well, I think you know, what we're talking about here is really extending, extending credit rather than uh, outright fiscal payments. You know, we've had this fiscal package. It's pretty substantial. Um, I think we need to see how that washes through the economy. Uh, but we are very concerned about making sure the credit channels stay open and facilitate credit extension to finance all of this sudden stop that we have in the economy. All right. And Barry? Uh, I think uh, we're starting to see it spread out. A, a church, a local church, just got $200,000 on the small business side. Uh, so there is money actually going out, and hopefully it will be a support for right now. And uh, I think we just need to see how that works first. All right, fair enough. Thank you both today. Really appreciate it. Barry James, you, Robert Kelly. Waldner, talking to us about these markets. Well, the pain of the oil price collapse is now starting to be felt by a bunch of companies. Two formerly big players in the market, Whiting Petroleum and Hornbeck Offshore, are now filing for bankruptcy. Let's bring in Brian Sullivan. He joins us on the phone for more, Brian, on the significance of these moves today. Yeah, Kelly, I mean, listen, I wish we could say this was expected or unexpected, rather. It's not. I mean, this is Whiting and Hornbeck. These are not major players, but they're not small either. I mean, their market caps are obviously minuscule. 
but they used to not be. One is an onshore company dealing most in North Dakota. The other one, as the name implies, is offshore. Uh, these are two bankruptcies. Well, Hornbeck has said it is going to file for bankruptcy. Whiting did. They've already filed. Hornbeck will. Um, these are two of the first, and there are likely many more to come. I'm spending the day talking to bankers and lawyers and people in the oil and gas markets, and this is going to be the first of many, unfortunately. You know, we're showing the five-year chart of Whiting when it was trading at $150 a share, Brian. You could zoom out even more and go back to when it was trading at almost $400 a share. There we go. <laughs> back in 2014, this is a Insane, shocking, right? shocking decline. It may not shock us today, but if you look at, at what's ha- took, taken place over the past five years, it's almost unfathomable. Well, it breaks my heart, too, because I've been up to Williston, North Dakota, many times. I mean, met some great people. I remember the first time I went up there, I paid $499 for a Hampton Inn at night because so many people were going there. People were, you know, buying a drink for $25, dropping 100 and saying, keep the change. Things are very different now. It's very tough. There's a lot of really good families I've met in my travels that are going to be deeply impacted by this. Now, I want to be clear, Whiting will continue to operate, Kelly. It's going to continue to pump. It's not like they're going away. But the reality is pay is already coming down. You've already seen Occidental cut pay. Rigs are being cut. The layoffs are, are coming on mass. Well, and the fact that they're going to keep pumping, is that the worst thing? You know, is there something to be said for uh, this idea that these producers need to get together or, or uh, decide how they can maybe constrain their, uh, constrain their supply? Because well, there's, they're the trying. prices so, are collapsing. We, yeah. yeah, we can't have an OPEC, right? I mean, that's illegal in the United States. But let's be clear, uh, Pioneer and Parsley Energy, you know, Pioneer and Parsley, they have petitioned Texas to basically import quotas, like start telling producers what they're able to produce. Now, will they do that? Will the state do that? I don't know, but they're asking for it, which is interesting. Here's another question, Brian, because I don't want to be too melodramatic about these swings in the oil patch, because this is an industry that has experienced this time and again. I mean, it's almost inherent to being involved in this business. Is there something, uh, I guess, about this time that might be actually better because of the recent experiences we've been through with these dramatic swings in crude? You know, maybe some lessons learned, a quicker process in terms of these, you know, something like that uh, that's constructive, or is this just going to be another uh, very difficult stretch for a while? I don't know. I mean, it's the, you know, I, I talked to a guy a couple months ago, and he said, uh, I've been through eight busts, and the only thing I know is there'll be a ninth. Um, you know, it's an industry that when prices rise, people take out loans, they start to pump fuel again and pump oil. The industry in the United States is likely going to have to get smaller, not not wants to or maybe has to get smaller in order to stabilize prices, as we have said. I mean, I've, I've talked to you about it. Like, it's it's not inconceivable that the price of oil uh, goes into high single digits. In fact, coming up at Power Lunch, I'm going to do the IEA just put out a big new report, just dropped a couple minutes ago. Uh, I'm looking through it now, and some of the stuff I've seen, the headlines are, are pretty pretty damning for the industry, to be honest with you, Kelly. Yeah, well, in the meantime, let's quickly mention what's going on beyond our borders, because April 1 was when Saudi, I believe, was going to start. Is it is it correct they were going to start ramping up production? Is that still the case? And I, I know you also said we have to keep an eye on Iran and some of what's happening there. Oh, this is really interesting. Um, so, yeah, today is actually the day. The price war is actually starting today. Today, April 1st is when the Saudis said they're going to ramp up. Everybody's focused on the Saudis and the Russians and the United States. Got some really interesting data from tanker trackers. They, they basically track the movement of ships around the world. The very professional service do a great job. They're showing huge amounts of Iranian exports going to Syria. Now, Syria normally imports about 70 to 100,000 barrels a day, not very much. Tanker trackers, and we got a picture, I believe, of some of the ships it's a couple weeks ago because they're using satellite data, and then they're trying to – what they do is they follow the ships around the world – 
the ships have their transponders turned off, but they have to have them on when they go through the Suez Canal. So it's like, it's like a ghost ship. It goes through the Suez, starts pinging satellites again, and then goes dark again. So Tanker Tracker's done a really good job showing how Syria is buying all this Iranian oil. The bottom line is, Kelly, low prices will bring in buyers hmm. until the storage is full. Yeah, and we're quickly getting to that point, but not there just yet. All right, Brian, thanks. For another me, day. Yeah, yeah, well, and, and for another hour, and we will see you in just a bit with more. We appreciate it. Thank you. That's our Brian Sullivan. Let's turn to casino stocks, which are down again today and are down more than 40 percent so far this year as the coronavirus outbreak continues to just take a toll on this industry. Contessa Brewer is following it all for us, and she joins us now with more and a special guest. Contessa? Hi there, Kelly. Yeah, Macau revenues have come da- come in and they are down 80 percent over last year. But that's actually an incremental improvement over February when the government had ordered casinos there to shut down their gaming operations for 15 days. So casino companies with properties there, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn Resorts, MGM Resorts, have now seen their operations shut down in Las Vegas and nationally along with all these other casinos, pretty much every casino in the nation is shut down at this point. The job cuts are steep. The loss of revenue is devastating. And now, of course, President Trump has issued a guideline for social distancing that lasts until the end of April. That may keep casinos closed. Amid all of this coronavirus crisis, there has been a changing of the guard at MGM Resorts. Bill Hornbuckle, who was the COO, has taken the reins now as acting CEO. He joins me now on CNBC for an exclusive first interview. Bill, thank you so much for making time for us today. Good morning, Contessa. Thank you. Uh, Tell me why you're taking over now when there is so much crisis swirling around you. Well, look, Jim Muren had announced earlier that he was retiring uh, and that he was going to move on to doing something different. Um, when this began to really hit and became uh, a real challenge, not only for us in Macau, but ultimately here in Nevada and throughout the other eight jurisdictions we're in, um, I had been leading the charge, if you will, as the former uh, COO of the company in pushing forward how we would get our head around first trying to keep this a safe environment that customers and employees would want to come into and work at and ultimately push this through what became now a closure of all of our facilities with the exception of Macau. Uh, challenging times, but I was in the midst of it to begin with, and we just thought it was the appropriate moment to take it over. Can you talk to me a little bit about the furloughs, the layoffs? How many people have you had to lay off? And what do your day-to-day expenses look like, even though revenues have plummeted? Sure. Um, it's been devastating. We have about 82,000 employees worldwide. As you know, Macau is back open again. We have about 12 or 13,000 between our two properties there. But of the 69,000 remaining, we've furloughed about 60,000 employees. Um, when we came to the decision, and it was a quick decision led by our board to ultimately close on the 16th, um, we quickly closed our casinos the following Monday evening. We closed all our properties within 48 hours. And by the following Friday, and I am, I am proud of the way the troops handled this, it, it speaks to our 2020 programming, uh, we had laid off and furloughed over 60,000 employees. Um, concern for them, very. Um, we've hopefully set up programs and benefits to protect them into the immediate future. Um, and I think the long-term view, and we have taken a long-term view on all of this, is good for the company. Um, we had the good fortune 
uh, at the if you call it uh, fortune at this point. But at the end of the year, we sold off eight billion dollars worth of our assets. Um, we retired about four billion in debt, but we have about four billion uh, right now of liquidity to push us through this and have the good fortune of think long term. And and you will still have rent payments. Are you still feeling good about this, what they call OPCO, PropCo, that you'll be an operating company and, and uh, releasing the property that you used to own and letting that add to your balance sheet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're protected well into next year, uh, both in Macau and here of note, uh, Nevada, and of course, all of our ju other jurisdictions. So we're in as good a shape as one can be, uh, frankly, much better shape than we would have been six months ago had this happened to us. And so we feel secure in knowing that we have the opportunity to play safe, to play the long game, and ultimately protect all of these jobs, not only here, but throughout the other uh, states. What are you learning from reopening in Macau about what the ramp might look like? What it will take for business to resume? It's a little different there because obviously Macau is an island. Um, what we learned about closure here is that they were decisive, they were quick, um, we closed the properties there literally within 48 hours as well. And it went a long way in protecting the safety of that environment, the citizens, and ultimately our employees there. Um, same thing in reverse. Uh, we were able to ramp up. Uh, property has good days. It's still ultimately leaking cash. Uh, yesterday, by way of example, we made an operating profit, which is a, one of a couple we've seen over the last several weeks. Um, but until the IVS system, the visa system, opens up the borders, um, that market will suffer. But we do believe uh, through the summer we'll see it regroup, uh, regain some steam, and ultimately return to uh, ultimately where we were, uh, you know, a year ago when this all first started, six months ago when this all first started. And how will you know it's time to reopen in the United States? When it's safe. Um, the governor here is just about to announce April 30th will be a push out. So we're not going to open here anywhere between, between now and then. Um, really, though, when it's safe, um, we were quick to do this in terms of shutdown, and we will take the same uh, lens, if you will, as we look at opening. Um, we want to make sure for our employees, first and foremost, and ultimately for our customers, it's a place people can come to and enjoy and relax. Um, look, corporate America has checked out for a while. A good piece of our business here in Southern Nevada is tied to corporate business and group business. Um, that has pushed itself into the third and most notably the fourth quarter as well as some of the major events that we host. Um, but you know, we're gonna take this literally one day, one week and one month at a time. Um, we won't necessarily wanna be the first to right. open. Uh, we'll open this intelligently and hopefully with some forethought. Listen, Bill, I, this is an amazing time to uh, take over the reins of a company like MGM. Um, and it really is an opportunity for you to show leadership. We wish you the best of luck going forward, and we really appreciate that you've given us the first interview. Thank I you. appreciate it, Contessa. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, and Contessa, our thanks to you as well for that, uh, Contessa Brewer. Coming up, the U.S. now has more than a million tests for coronavirus, but hospitals and states say it's not nearly enough. We're going to look at where testing stands and one biotech investor's bold idea to fix this problem. Plus, millions of small businesses are expected to tap the coronavirus rescue loan program when it launches on Friday. Everything you need to know about that is straight ahead. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Stocks about 100 points off the lows, but a pretty grim day across the board with a Dow down 800 points. Uh, that's just hanging on to the 21,100 level, a 3.7 percent decline, nearly 4 percent for all the major averages today. The Russell's 2000 small caps, unfortunately, looking a heck of a lot worse than that, too. Uh, the president warning of a very, very painful two weeks ahead as coronavirus cases and death numbers continue to climb. Let's get out to Rahel Solomon, who has the very latest for us at this hour. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. So let's start with New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo now saying that the state will now see the worst of the pandemic, not until the end of April. Cuomo also closing New York City playgrounds to try to improve social distancing. He says that New Yorkers must follow the outbreak restrictions so that the worst case scenarios don't come to pass. Our course for planning purposes is a moderate model because in truth, the higher models, we don't even have a chance at meeting that capacity anyway. You say over 110,000 beds. Uh, There is no possible way we could get there. Maryland is expanding its coronavirus testing with three drive-through sites set up at motor vehicle testing locations. They're meant for people who have approval from their doctors or who are symptomatic. And NBC News just now reporting that Florida's governor will be issuing a stay-at-home order for all Floridians except for essential activity that starts at midnight tomorrow. Of course, as always, for more coronavirus coverage, you can head to our website, cnbc.com. But, Kelly, as you know, that Florida news, uh, pretty big news because the state was getting quite a bit of heat for not issuing that order sooner. That's huge. Rahel, thank you very much for bringing that to us. Rahel Solomon. And we watch the markets. Dow's down 840 points. Uh, Can't hurt at this point, I guess, better late than never. Uh, From not enough tests to the questions about accuracy and long wait times to get results. And then questions about the veracity. Uh, The race to improve COVID-19 testing does continue. Meg Terrell is here with more. And she also has a special guest for us today. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, more than a million Americans have now been tested for the coronavirus. We hit that milestone this week. And it's a majority done by commercial labs. More than 800,000 of these tests have been performed by companies like Quest and LabCorp. You can see here when testing just started to ramp up, uh, finally surpassing that million uh, test mark. But there are still bottlenecks and not everybody who wants a test can get one. And the CDC is guiding to prioritizing to people in the hospital and healthcare workers and first responders with symptoms. Some of the reasons for those backlogs, shortages of supplies to run the tests and protective equipment uh, needed to protect the people taking the samples. Uh, A backlog that was generated at the beginning of all of this that the labs just couldn't keep up with the demand. Uh, A logistics slowdown because there are fewer flights going around the country carrying these samples to the labs to be processed. And also Debbie Burke saying last night more recently approved tests aren't being used. People are sticking with the ones that they started with, and that's causing backlogs too. And Kelly, you're seeing a variability of testing across the country, state by state, on a per capita basis. This great chart made by our Nick Wells shows uh, states like New York, Washington, Louisiana testing the most on a per capita basis, but states like Texas, South Carolina, and California 
way behind. And in fact, California has a major bottleneck reporting 57,000 pending tests. So to join us to discuss all of these issues and how they could potentially be improved uh, is Dr. Mike Pellini. He is a managing partner with Section 32, a venture capital firm. He's a diagnostics expert, a doctor. Dr. Pellini, thanks for being here. You know, what explains the problems with our testing capacity? You've been on this for weeks trying to figure this out. What have you learned? Meg, first of all, I just want to thank you for inviting me on to speak. I certainly wish it was under better circumstances, but uh, I can't imagine a more important topic to discuss right now. I think one of the fundamental changes that we're facing as a nation is that we have absolutely undervalued uh, diagnostics, not just in the past three months, but certainly over the course of the past couple of years. So, found, so diagnostic testing is the foundation of everything if we are going to move forward. So in terms of saving the healthcare system, in terms of our economic recovery, in terms of our emotional recovery, and it's just an area we haven't, we haven't placed much value on. I've seen some positive signs, right? We see the labs, the national labs are starting to scale up. The diagnostic manufacturers, both large and small, are pushing forward. But we have to continue to press hard. We need a comprehensive national strategy here, both for COVID, but also for diagnostic testing itself. Now, you have an idea, a proposal for how we can be better using the data from these tests on a national level. Um, tell us about that plan and why we don't have an ability to use this data already to guide our response. Yeah, I mean, there's statute that makes it very difficult. But I'll tell you, one of the things that this administration has done an outstanding job of is rewriting our rule book. So let's take advantage of it. Let's assume that the rules to this point in time don't matter anymore. Let's start from scratch. And we can do that. We can do that to fix diagnostic testing for the immediate term with just getting the test, making the test available for the midterm, which is where we need surveillance testing by the fall. And then for the long term, which is an overhaul of the diagnostic system to make sure this never happens again. But what's going to take a comprehensive strategy and as part of that strategy, every single test that is run needs to be uploaded into a national database. And so then you say, well, how does one do that? Well, we know we can build a national database, but how do we incentivize, uh, how do we incentivize providers who are running these tests to do so? It's actually straightforward, and this is where the roadblock has been in the past. Let's pull the government payers and the private payers together. Let's agree to payment for these tests, whether they're performed in the home or in the national labs or somewhere in between. But before payment is made, let's make sure that each test result is uploaded to a national database. Because that national database and if we, well, that national database, if made available to academic, government, and industry researchers, can have dramatic effects. It's going to help us refine and improve our testing going forward. It's going to help with national surveillance, which is going to be critical to help us get out of this economic downturn. And also with, and potentially with the recurrence of, of COVID in the fall, it's going to help with our drug and vaccine discovery and development. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. it's just going to help us make informed decisions based on data, not, you know, we have to stop guessing. 
In that sense, Doctor, it's Kelly here back in the studio. I just want to ask you, how many tests, roughly speaking, do you think this country needs to conduct to really get our arms around coronavirus? So ballpark how many tests? And then how many times do you think people might have to take this test, including both to figure out if they, if they do have it, which might take a few times, and then once they're clear of it? It's a, it's a great question. And so I think we've seen numbers put out there over the course of the past couple of days where we might need a million tests per week. Wow. I would encourage everyone to think about it differently. What we truly need is an ability to test up to 330 million Americans. And let's do the math. Let's do the math very quickly. Even if each test costs $100, we have just spent $2 trillion on a package to help the economy. I think we can all agree we are going to be doing that multiple times over in the coming months and the coming quarters. If every single individual in this country had access to one, two, or three tests, that's $100 billion that we might spend over the course of this year to right the ship, and that ship is the United States. Absolutely. We need tests, and there are, there are certainly strong economic incentives for us to get this right. And you're right. We, we absolutely could have the money for it. Can we get the actual tests? How bad is the bottleneck? I've read studies today that suggest a lot of these tests, doctor, are even themselves coming from China. Can we ramp up testing here in this country quickly, or are, are we going to continue to have a constraint? Well, I'm not convinced that the, that the constraint is in the tests themselves. I'm most convinced that the, that the constraint is just in the system, the logistics around the system. But let's be very clear. It's going to take continued pressing from the diagnostic manufacturers, including Roche, including Abbott, um, um, and including Thermo Fisher. I actually think they've been doing a really nice job. We'll have to figure out how to get the national labs to continue to scale up their offerings so we no longer have bottlenecks. But I know Quest and LabCorp have been pushing. It's also going to take the local hospitals. I've just told that there are over 80 hospitals now. Perhaps I would guess it's even higher than that, offering testing at the local level. And it's going, going to take home tests, simple tests that can be run in the home. When we put all four of these things together, we can certainly have the capacity to run the appropriate number of tests in the not-too-distant future. It just takes a concerted effort. Fascinating. Dr. Polini, thank you so much uh, for being with us. I agree, Kelly, it is fascinating. Yeah. And we'd love to have you back. Kelly, back over to you. Meg, really terrific stuff. Uh, you're reporting the guests that you've brought us and, and everything you're doing on this story. We greatly appreciate it. That's our Meg Terrell. Well, it's a new quarter, a new month, and time to pay the rent for millions of Americans. But for many of them, they're simply not going to have the cash this time. How are the landlords handling this new reality? Robert Frank will be here with those details. And from rents to mortgage payments, the servicing companies are being flooded with help-me-out calls. How is that industry going to deal with the deluge? Our special breaking news coverage will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. We're just slightly off the lows of the session. The Dow is down 4% right now. The S&P 4.2%. The Nasdaq a little less than that. And earlier, I mentioned the Russell 2000s, which are, which are down 6 and 2 uh, thirds of a percent, 6.7% or so. Uh, all 11 sectors in the S&P are lower. Real estate, utilities, and financials, the worst performers. Financials and energy are weighing big time on the small caps today as well. Uh, there, uh, as I said, the real estate sector is down nearly 8%. Well, the country is trying to deal with this unprecedented crisis, which is wreaking havoc on the housing and renting markets. Diane Olick is looking at the surge in mortgage forbearance requests nationwide, while New York is bracing itself for 40% of tenants possibly not paying rent this month. Robert Frank has that angle. Diana, let's start with you and the kind of volume we're seeing for these forbearance requests. Well, Kelly, the calls are pouring in. The CEO of Caliber Home Loans, which services three-quarters of a million government-backed loans, had over 8,000 calls on Sunday alone. The government forbearance program allows borrowers to miss up to a year's worth of mortgage payments. Those payments are then tacked on to the end of the loan, so it's not a freebie. Now, I spoke with the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and he had a stunning prediction of the number of borrowers who could need help. April looks like it'll be approximately 300,000 loans for Fannie and Freddie. For the overall market, that would translate approximately into 700,000 loans. We are thinking that closer to May, we'll see that for Fannie and Freddie's book closer to a million. So probably by May, a little more than two million. Now, that's just two months, though. The numbers will likely go much higher the longer it takes for the economy to reopen and for people to get their jobs back. There has been criticism of the forbearance program because it doesn't require borrowers to prove any hardship. Calabria admitted they are working right now, quote, on the honor system. Kelly, back to you. Diane, I just appreciate you standing in front of that tree. I mean, that is a beauty. (laughs) Is that a cherry tree? (laughs) Cherry blossom, a weeping, a weeping cherry blossom. It is lovely, and we needed that. A little break from the... From the grim news this hour, Diana, thanks very much, Diana Olick. Let's turn over to Robert Frank, uh, where, Robert, we are facing this pressing situation in New York where, uh, according to reports starting today, 40 percent of people might not be able to make their rent. That's right, Kelly. Two-thirds of New Yorkers are renters. That works out to be over 5 million New Yorkers. And if you extrapolate the math, that's $20 billion in rental payments due today. Many of those, up to perhaps 40%, will not be paid. Now, as Diana just mentioned, homeowners and landlords, they have received some forbearance for mortgages, but renters are still legally required to pay their rent. That's created a cancel-the-rent movement online and in the streets. Protesters in New York and California calling for a rent strike. There's a protest, digital protest, starts at 2 o'clock today. Now, many are hoping for this bill that's making its way through Albany that would allow New York to cancel their rent for three months. Now, the the bill would also provide some relief for landlords through mortgage freezes. But the domino effects here, Kelly, are huge, not just for the banks and the mortgage holders, but also the city of New York, which gets a third of its revenue from property taxes funded in large part by those rents, not to mention all the building staff, the vendors, this vast economy built around New York real estate that relies on that $20 billion a month in rent. Now, Governor Cuomo has uh, answered this by calling for a moratorium on evictions, but many housing advocates and lawmakers say that's just going to lead to a wave of evictions in July when this is all over. So therefore, you have to have some kind of legal protection for people not to pay their rent at least for three months. Kelly? It's going to be such a mess. Uh, Like you said, hopefully help on the way. And a digital protest is another one of those signs of the times. Robert, thanks so much. Robert Frank.
Up next, some bullish calls on your phone, your bank, and your coronavirus comfort food pizza. Uh, we'll tell you all about those today. Plus, now that Congress has passed the Relief Act, it's time for small businesses to figure out how this all really works. After the break, our Kate Rogers will walk us through the process for getting Main Street all of these loans, and they'll be forgiven, remember, in some circumstances. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get to some of the big calls of the day here. Goldman Sachs added Verizon to its conviction buy list. That was one Barry James liked at the top of the hour as well. Uh, Goldman did lower their price target by 6 bucks to 61 Verizon's around 53 today. Goldman's saying they think the stock offers the most attractive combination of total return and risk. They cite three key reasons for this. Stable earnings per share, an attractive 4.5% dividend yield that's well covered, and a strong balance sheet Verizon down just about 1% today. Meanwhile, KBW upgrading J.P. Morgan to outperform while lowering its price target to 120 from 142, saying J.P. Morgan is well positioned to withstand a recessionary environment and to come out of it in a better position than peers because of its balance sheet. They added that investors can justify owning the stock at current valuations because it's a high-quality franchise. J.P.M. is down 6% today in what has been a pretty tough session for financials. And finally, MKM upgrading Papa John's PCZA to a buy with a $64 price target. They say the pizza segment appears better positioned than other restaurants, because of digital and its delivery infrastructure. Their reasons for the upgrade include clear evidence of same-store sales momentum, market share gains in the first quarter, its first in five years, and management that can further support its franchisees. The company did pull its guidance yesterday. Still, Papa John's up nearly 5% today uh, on the back of that bullish call. Residents of Pennsylvania have now been placed under a statewide stay-at-home order. This right after Florida issued theirs finally, and this just before the new $350 billion small biz coronavirus loan program launches. The launches tomorrow and millions are expected to apply. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was on CNBC earlier today with this message to small businesses. I very much want people to sign up for this. It's a great way to hire people back or make sure you're getting paid if you have people at work. And this will cover about 50% of the payroll of of the private enterprises. All right, so how does the program work? For more, let's bring in our own Kate Rogers. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, those loans will be available beginning Friday, and senior administration officials say that the capital may be available to small businesses as early as same day. So here's how it will work. The Small Business Administration is currently working on a portal where small business owners can find lenders that are in their area by entering their zip code. That's if they don't already have a banking relationship in existence. Then they can apply online through that bank. Right now, some 1,800 lenders are a part of the program, but any FDIC-insured institution is eligible to register with the SBA, and the administration expects that a lot of them are going to participate. Loans will have a 0.5% interest rate. Payments can be deferred for up to six months, and loan forgiveness, as we've talked about, is available if employees are retained or rehired, and the loan is used for certain expenses like payroll and rent or utilities. The loans are 100% backed by the SBA, and they will be administered by the banks. They're also going to be available on a first-come, first-served basis, which is really important. Demand also is going to be really high, and a lot of questions do remain about how this demand will be met. Another important point, one that Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin made again on our air today, if the $350 billion is used up, he does plan to head back to Congress to ask for more funding from Main Street. Not sure how much he's planning to ask for. We're sure the money will go quickly, and we certainly will be monitoring it in real time on Friday. Kelly, back over to you. Yeah, a lot of questions about, you know, how well they can get this, you know, website and the digital infrastructure all, all up and running. And in terms of the people who can apply, Kate, 
What are the cutoffs? You know, and, do, and I think you, you mentioned this before that it does apply to independent contractors. How big a business can you be until they say, hey, you know, sorry, this, these aren't for you? So the loans that will be available beginning Friday are for small businesses with 500 employees or fewer. Independent contractors and sole proprietors will be able to apply in another week later hmm. on April 10th. And we have, we have heard some concern from some of the small business advocacy groups on how much capital will be left once they're able to apply. You know, how big of a run to the banks will we see on Friday? As we, we heard from senior officials yesterday, they really do expect volume to be very high. A lot of businesses are hurting and will surely be applying for these loans. What will be left? For the independent contractors and the sole proprietors, all remains to be seen. One other major point here, the Consumer Bankers Association says, typically this is a $20 billion annual program, the SBA 7A program. They're looking to ramp this up to nearly $350 billion in just a few weeks, Kelly. So this wow. is going to be a massive undertaking uh, in, in many, many ways. And that's a great point about whether there's going to be enough even next week. Uh, interesting. And then they'd have to maybe go back to Congress for that. All right. Uh, sort of some narratives to watch. By the way, last thing, are they going to tell us, Kate, when this money, are we going to get kind of like a daily or a weekly update in terms of how much has been dispersed? I hope so. We're in frequent contact with the SBA, and I'm assuming they're going to want to let people know, you know, how quickly this cash is getting into the hands of small businesses. But the the banks are going to have the delegated authority to actually make the loans. The SBA will make sure that your business hasn't already applied for a loan with your tax ID number, but really it's in the hands of the banks to get this out to you as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I hope they can get the data to us. That would be helpful. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers. Coming up, a new month, a new quarter, but still the same volatile markets. We're going to look at some dividend darlings that can provide you with some income as this continues. Here's a look at some of the names that are outperforming today. Kroger, Clorox back on top of the list and Dollar General, too. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Major pressure on the cruise lines again today. Carnival's down 18 percent, uh, and it also increased the size of its bond offering this morning with a 13 percent coupon to get those investors. Seema Modi has more for us. Seema? Kelly, that's right. Both credit rating agencies, Moody's and S&P, downgrading Carnival's credit rating today to one notch above junk level status. This as the largest cruise line operator, Carnival, is going to the bond market with this three to four billion dollar bond offering uh, a coupon that I'm being told has been 12 to 13 percent, which trades right in line with some of the other high yield junk credit that is currently on the market. It comes as the cruise industry has suspended sailings till mid-May, in some cases, till the end of the year, depending on what line. At the same time, we're watching these two Holland America cruise ships, Kelly, headed towards Florida, unclear whether they will get entry or access to the ports in Florida. Yesterday, President Trump referencing those two ships and that he will be having a conversation with the governor of Florida to get those ships access to those ports so those passengers can disembark. But certainly a lot of pressure when you look at shares of Carnival now down as much as 18 percent, trading at the lows of the day. And a year-to-date chart will show you it's down 80 percent. Kelly. Yep, under $11 a share. All right, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi with the latest there. Now, as the hunt for yield continues, I mean, you can get 13 percent from Carnival. Uh, investors are looking for where they can get the best and safest returns on their money. Here with some ideas about that is Dan Genter. He's CEO and chief investment officer of RNC Genter Capital Management. Dan, I, I imagine you're not uh, participating in the Carnival bond offering. We're not participating in the Carnival bond offering. I think, you know, one of the things that's going to happen with Carnival is since it's not a U.S. entity with the new package and the care package, it's focused on primarily companies that are domiciled here or have most of their business here. All their ships are off st- offshore, so they're really not going to get any help. They're, they're going to weather this 
on their own. I mean, we think that there are better opportunities that are certainly going to get financial aid and, and ones that are going to uh, survive on their own, frankly. What are some examples of those? Well, I think you have to go to the three areas that are really going to lead us out of this. And it's going to be tech, it's going to be healthcare, and it's going to be financials. I mean, uh, we've all seen that we've underinvested in infrastructure. We, we were just not prepared as we, we try to go to this uh, new abnormal, if you will, to have 100% of our workforce working from home. And so we're going to have to expand. Companies like Broadcom are certainly going to be a major part of that. They're getting 5.2% in dividends while you wait. Those dividends are only taxed at 20%. You know, Cisco is going to be the major king of networking, and, and we're getting 3.5% while we wait on Cisco. Uh, Corning, you know, that's going to be providing more fiber optics and more infrastructure. Uh, the same as you go on the healthcare side. You know, the, the healthcare which has been our redheaded stepchild for many, many years, still may have red hair, but it's going to come through this with a white hat on. Hmm. And uh, companies like, like Galeed are going to lead the way. Strong dividend there also. Amgen, AbbVie has a 6.1% dividend. I mean, these are going to be, uh, certainly we've, you know, reinvigorated that industry and seen, you know, the benefit that they have to mankind. So you've mentioned tech and, and healthcare, which don't take too much uh, persuading. But what about the banks, especially today when the financials are trading so poorly again? Well, I think the financials clearly are really getting hit. One of the things that happened overnight is you're, you're seeing a, a lot of news that's coming out about the European banks that are cutting their dividend. And we're worried if, if that contagion you know, goes into our own banks. The, uh, but we're dealing with a totally different situation. I mean, we have, a, we have a $2 trillion bailout that can be rapidly expanded. Our banks are getting a lot of help. The, the Fed has just totally opened the spigot to do whatever it needs to do, even more than we saw in 2008. And I think one of the things that, frankly, we're missing about the banks is, you know, you're, you're not only giving the, getting these extraordinarily high yields, you know, like you're seeing with, with J.P. Morgan, with Citi, 4.5%, even a super regional like Truist, but you're, they're going to actually be very active during this time period. I mean, they're going to provide the financing, and as your prior segment just said, they're going to administer these SBA loans. I mean, the, the, there's going to be millions of applications, and the only way to do it is through a local network of banks that already have yeah. relationships. So they're going to make money here. Yeah, they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, do you think that Wells Fargo 7.5% dividend is safe? Real quickly, Dan? Yeah, I do. I think they'll backstop it. I think there's a lot of places they can go. I mean, what we have to realize is the banking industry has been stressed, yeah. tested, and overstressed tested, and they're in, they're in solid ground. All right, Dan Genter. Great idea, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.